that bad addict. Um, every time I was able to get a loan, I was doing drugs. I've been to prison four times, twice in the state, twice in the fed. I was doing all this crazy stuff, cooking drugs and just staying high. God called me from a prison cell. I was a homeless drug addict and my hope was found in a needle. pregnant, homeless, um, living out of my van. You know, it wasn't Freeway that saved me. It wasn't John's Troop that saved me. But God uses Freeway in such a mighty way as a tool to reach these people. There's not a community or a county in America that doesn't have a drug problem. And the, the church has the answer, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hello, welcome to One Broken Life. My name is John Stroop, and my special guest today is my friend Josh Zuninga. Got it. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing good. How you doing? Awesome. Awesome. Uh, this is going to be an exciting episode. I just want to, in case you've never tuned in or you don't know about One Broken Life, uh, One Broken Life is a production of Freeway Ministries. We, uh, we explore the unique lives and uh, interesting individuals like Josh and, and have conversations about what God can do through one broken life. Um, we, we've had before we hear about the, the negative impact that drugs and crime make on our community, fatherless homes, prisons that are full, but what you don't hear about is the positive impact one broken, yeah. one, one broken life, one radically changed drug addict can have on our community. And so we're exploring those. We're, we're exploring people's lives uh, from the pit to the pulpit, the big mess into the big message. And so I'm just so thankful that you're here with us today, brother, um, as we, we explore your life. And so kind of a theme verse for One Broken Life is Psalms 51:17. The sacrifices of God are broken and contrite heart, O God, these you will not despise. Uh, I love that verse. It kind of explains everything we believe in here at Freeway Ministries. Um, and so I just kind of go through your past first, Josh. We'll, our first episode, we'll explore the old man. Yep. We'll explore kind of where you come from, who you are. So would you just like to give an introduction of who Josh is right now, uh, what you do, who you are, so our people can can kind of know you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Josh Zuniga. Um, I am currently right now director at Freeway South Ministries. Um, we planted in October of 2019, my wife, Alexandra, and I. So we came out of BBC, both of us, and we graduated college, got married, and planted Freeway South, uh, all within about a three-month time span. So it was a crazy um, couple, three months. But we've been there since 2019 at Riverstone Fellowship Campus, and uh, we've been just going strong in the South Springfield, Christian County area, um, and just taking what learned here, what I lived here, and what I was a product of here um, to South Springfield and Christian County and keep moving that up direction. Awesome. So why don't you – We I know you well, um, your past, but our people – they just see you now. And so what was like, like, what was life like growing up for you, Josh? So growing up, just quick overview. I mean, my earliest memory was my mom and my dad and I, when we, when I was five, left California. So my mom woke me up in the middle of the night. I was five years old. I have that memory. She gave me a handheld video game and we packed up and we went up north to California for a little bit. 
and they lined out legal stuff as they're going through divorce. And my mom got us at the house. It just, it wasn't safe. My dad was drunk a lot. He was high and she was scared to leave. So we did in the middle of the night and then my whole family packed up and we moved to Springfield, Missouri together. Um, and after that, we were here for a few years and it's really as soon as I started getting um, out of middle school, kind of that summer and into high school is when my drugs and my addiction, it, it started, you know, dabbling, drawing all the lines in the sand, you know, I'm going to try this, I'm not going to do this. Um, but that went away real quick and then it went into the lifestyle of 13 years of just full on addiction and okay. I tried everything. Yeah. So you was the, you say 13 years. 13 years. So when were you, um, when did you start using drugs? Like, when was your first, like, this is when I started using. I can go back and I can say that's kind of, that's, that's, that's the age at the time. So it was during spring break in eighth grade. I went with my best friend at that time to Baxter Springs, Kansas, to go stay at his grandparents' house. And that was the first time I got drunk. That was the first time I got high. And it just, it started from there. It yeah. Stop. Okay. So when you, and you, and so you didn't have a father? No. And, and you know, one of the things that, you know, when we explore people's lives, you know, our, one of our phrases is at Freeway Ministries is one broken life at a time. We believe in reaching one broken life. There was a there's a guy who was walking on the shore with his dad, and there was all these uh, these sea turtles, and they were dying. They were going to die, you know, and they kept getting eaten by the birds. And his dad had a burden to help him, and there was just so many. He'd pick one up, and he'd throw them in, and he'd, you know. And his son said, how are we ever going to really help help them? There's so many of them. And he said, like this, and he picked one up. He said, we just helped that one, you one know, at time. one at a time. And so we explore those lives, and you're one of those lives. But one of the things that I see kind of repeating itself is a fatherless home. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you're growing up without a dad. You're in eighth grade. Your mom comes from this abusive escape background, right? Um, leave in the middle of the night type thing or whatever it was, and um, starting over. My mom did the same thing. It was my uncle instead of my father, though. But um, <clears throat> what she must have been going through when you was in eighth grade drinking and drugging, you know, I know she had to have known, right? Yeah, it, it took, I'd say, probably about a year um, for her to kind of find out and, and know and get wise to what I was doing. Uh, but once she did, you know, there was still a little bit of fear I had, like when she said, you're grounded, I'm taking this stuff away. But it didn't take long for me to figure out, listen, she's at work all day, and she ultimately couldn't keep me there. She couldn't keep me at the house. She couldn't keep me grounded. And when that switch flipped, when I figured that out, it was just, it was full on. It was all out. So um, how long, how long have you been clean and sober today? So this month, August 2021 makes six years. Six years. I came into the Freeway Discipleship House um, August 27th, 2015. So you, you, I know your background, I know your story. So you traveled, so let's, let's kind of just reflect. When you was a kid, you was eight, in the eighth grade, you was drinking, drugging. You drink and then you started drugging, right? Using mm -hmm. drugs other than alcohol. Yeah. You moved away from Springfield, right, for a while? Yeah. Tell us about that, what happened? So it got so bad, you know, like I said, I, I drew those lines, you know, just smoking weed and drinking and say, I'll never put a pill in my mouth. I'll never put a needle in my arm. I'll never put anything up my nose. And, um, within a couple of years, that was just all those lines have been broken. Um, and I had gotten really bad. Um, I went through a phase where I got heavy crack and then into heroin 
And then when I got into heroin really bad, the guy that showed me how to use how to use a needle for the first time, a year prior, he moved out to Austin, Texas to get cleaned up because it had gotten so bad. And, I mean, he grew up on the south side of Springfield. He was a quarterback um, for Kickapoo High School. You know, he was, grew up in a good family, you know, in a good part of town. And he was doing good, so I went out there, and I was in Austin for almost five years. And I started doing really good for the first year. It was the first time ever that I got off drugs. I wasn't using. Um, I, I still was drinking, um, but it's more recreational. And so I didn't have that addiction like it ended up being at the end. I did really good out there, got a job, learned to trade. And at the end of the five years, um, that drinking, it started being replaced. Well, th this is legal. You know, this is socially acceptable. It's on every corner. And that turned into uh, full-on alcoholism. I was going through over two liters of vodka a day. And it got so bad. Everything that I had started and, and built up out there, just like everything before, I had to take off and leave. I lost my truck, got it repoed, got evicted from a condo where I was living at. And I made the trip uh, five years later and came back to Springfield, Missouri. And that guy that I moved out, who was my best friend at the time, um, I had ran into him uh, a year later. He moved into a recovery program um, in Springfield. And I was working security at the North Side Building one at our old place. And I heard somebody call me by my last name and I knew it was somebody from my past. I turned around and it was him. And he said, I'm only here because I'm required to be here because of this program I'm living in. I'm not really about this God thing. And I got a little opportunity to talk to him, but not much. And four months later, uh, he was found dead, overdosed uh, in his bed. Yeah. It's a reality, right? It is. And so as we talk about, you know, you, you was in Austin and then you came back to Springfield. Um, what, when did you come to the point where you knew your life was out of control? Like, when did you come to the brokenness? Like, we say this, that rock bottom is not a place. Rock bottom is a state of mind. And yeah. so you can, a lot of parents will talk to me and they'll say, I don't know. I, I hear this. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard this. Parents, loved ones, family, friends. They say, I don't know how, how much further down they can go because they've already lost it all. Mm -hmm. So they've already, this, their, their, their kid died. Uh, they've been to prison and lost their family, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so they don't think that they can come to rock bottom because of the state, right? It's right. not a state. It's not a place. It's not, it's not the worst case scenario. Rock bottom is not that. Rock bottom is a, is a state of mind. It's not a place. It's not, you know, I believe that somebody can do, somebody can witness a tragedy and that tragedy be so horrific and not make them hit rock bottom but then one day their car can run out of gas in their addiction, and that place could be the rock bottom. Absolutely. And so, when when did you hit rock bottom? When did it? When did you finally say that's it? And what what what? Tell us about that. I think it was it was a process. It was over a three month span. So that that was the um, which you know this and um, basically four times in a three month span. I was in the cardiac ICU. It was back to back. I, I would get out of the hospital for maybe a week and a half in between. And I would be in there for a week, week and a half in the cardiac ICU, fully sedated. I mean, ventilator to catheter, everything. And each time getting out, I knew what I was going back to. I knew I was going to be right back there. And I didn't want to, like mentally. And I told myself I didn't want to, but I didn't know an answer. You know, I'd done AA. I'd done NA. I'd already been in multiple recovery houses at that point. I'd have been in rehabs. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know what else. So I kept going back and kept trying to do it on my own. And I believe the last time it it was just the grace of God and a divine intervention. Um, 
uh, with the phone call that you got from where I was staying at the recovery place. Yeah. Um, and showing up in my room and I just, I, I didn't know it had anything honestly to do with pursuing a relationship like it was going to look like with Christ. But at that point I had no other choice to try, uh, when you interviewed me and I tried everything else. So I knew there had to be something else. Um, my family had tried to talk to me about God before, but I'd get so angry. I'd get so mad. I would see what's he have to do with my addiction. You know, I didn't grow up going to church on a regular basis. So I felt like that was almost like a cop out or just something that they threw at it to, Oh, give it to God and everything's fixed. And that wasn't the case, but God was the one who broke those chains. And that, that was my rock bottom. The last time getting out, um, I had nowhere else to go. Um, it was finally when I couldn't go back to my grandparents' basement. I couldn't go back to where my mom was at. And that was it. Yeah. So for the people who don't know, uh, Josh actually was interviewed in an ICU unit with tubes up his nose. Um, I had a recovery organization treatment center call me. And uh, somebody in the treatment center who I know is very close to them said, we can't help him. Uh, they were giving you breathalyzers. And Vivitrol. And Vivitrol. And uh, for those that don't know, again, we're using recovery words. Uh, Vivitrol is a drug. Um, it's actually a shot, correct? Or is it a, ch a chip? So, no, it, you can do it orally in the pill um, if you have side effects, which isn't as effective. But the shot is foolproof. It's what they say yeah so they vivitrol is a shot it's supposed to be the medical uh fix all for alcoholism and mm. so they give you the shot and the shot is supposed to make it to where you don't have cravings and you can't get drunk right yeah so it, opiate and alcohol um they <laughs> affect the same serotonin receptors in your brain and so it blocks them so you can use but you can't get high basically yeah but you got around that yeah and the, the way you got around it was just drank five times as much as you're supposed to, right? Right. And then you would get drunk, mm -hmm. but it would wear off quick. Yeah. And I correct me if I'm wrong. And no, so you're right. You it would wear off quick, and then you would you would sober up, and you'd go get more. Mm -hmm. So, as far as your mind goes, and your balance, and your coordination, and everything, you're sober. Mm -hmm. But as far as your blood level goes, you're drunk. Yeah. And so you're basically killing yourself. You're poisoning your body yeah. with alcohol. So on Vivitrol, you would just keep drinking, and you would sneak around the breathalyzers, mm -hmm. and you would do that to get away with it. And you're in a recovery a recovery program and a treatment center. Living getting, on site. Living on, the, living on the site, living on site at the treatment center, getting drunk, uh, and getting – did the ambulance come get you? One of the times which I didn't find out until uh, I gave my testimony one night at the old building and a lady that was the ER nurse that night came up to me afterwards and said, I was your nurse that night when the ambulance brought you in. So out of those um, four times in that three month span, I remember every single one of them driving myself. I drove myself to it. Um, but one of the times she said I came in as a patient found down. So somebody called an ambulance and I still to this day don't know what happened, how I got called in, but an ambulance came and picked me up from wherever I was at and brought me in. Yeah, and so I got a call from that treatment center, and they said, he needs your guys' help. We can't help him. And so this person is very close to me, and so I, for them, I just went to the hospital. And uh, and Josh was, he had tubes in his nose, and he's laying there in the ICU unit. And I, I don't know if you were sleeping or I woke you up, but um, I think, did I bring you the application? I can't remember. I was in such a haze. So Yeah, so I, I talked to you about, you know, the program and 
uh, if you were serious and such. Mm-hmm. And then you, uh, your grandma brought you yeah. to the to the men's house, and I remember vividly because your grandma is a Christian, mm-hmm. and uh, she's gone to be with the Lord now. But um, she, rem- I remember her giving her a tour, and then she said, "I feel really good at leaving you at a place like this." Yeah, and so. Uh, that was your journey to the men's house yeah. from the ICU unit, right? Yep. So, you know, I got a list of questions here. So what was treatment like before you came to Freeway? What was, what was, your, what was your idea of treatment, Josh? Treatment, from what I'd known, I mean, the first time was uh, in high school, basically. And from what I'd known is just figure out ways how to stay sober. You're, you're always going to have an urge um, for getting high, for getting drunk, um, figure out what these, what they call triggers are and stay away from those. Um, it was basically being miserable, but staying sober. Um, like there was no hope, there was no joy, there was no life. It was basically counting every single day, another day sober, another day sober, but there wasn't a purpose. And that's what treatment was. And uh, I was an inpatient twice and outpatient once when I was younger and just nothing never stuck. It would last a few weeks. One time I made it six months. That was the longest I ever did. Um, but nothing lasted. So the, the I'm going to talk about a secular view versus a world, secular worldview versus a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. And so a secular worldview would say, here's the, here is the definition secularly, if that's even a word, secularly. If not, I just made <laughs> it up. But um, secular a definition for alcoholism or addiction is this. A disease that can never be cured but only be managed. Yes. And so that's kind of the, that's the phrase. You'll hear it over and over again. Yeah. So that's why when people meet in the secular meetings, they introduce themselves as the addiction they struggle with. Right. Hi, my name is John. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, my name is Josh. I'm an addict. And so repeatedly they're telling themselves that's who they are, their identities and their addiction. And so we believe that addiction is not the problem. We believe that addiction is what you see. That's right. So we get to the problem and we deal with the addiction. And the problem is the heart, but also the unmanageable life. And so we call that discipleship. Yeah. And so discipleship is our recovery. And that's the difference, yeah. is that you're not an addict anymore. Your identity is found in Jesus. And so you kind of answered my other question, question on treatment centers. I was just wondering how many treatment centers you've been through. Okay. How many times you said two outpatient, one inpatient? Two inpatient, one outpatient. And, uh, I mean, that is, that, that was the mentality. That's what we learned, you know. And then I did the AA and NA, I mean, what you'd say religiously, like constantly, multiple meetings a day, multiple meetings a day, you know, a couple years telling yourself, I'm an addict, this is who I am, identifying, like you said, yourself with that. And it, uh, you can't even get out of the mindset of it when you're identifying yourself as that, who yeah. you are every day. And your that. authority and the people who are your, your role models, they're, you're, they call it sponsors, sponsors they're telling you that's who you are they're giving you those books you know Mm -hmm. and i in no means want to disrespect anybody's way of recovery i'm Mm -hmm. just i'm just telling you i don't see how you can have hope and looking at yourself in the mirror and addressing yourself as an addict or an alcoholic every day yeah Uh, to me you know when you tell me i have a disease that can never be cured but only be managed you're giving me a green light to use yeah because i can't help it i got a disease right and so uh, they compare, I wrote an article called The Ascent of Addiction, and uh, I went against the Mayo doctors, and I wrote a rhetoric paper against their theories. And so um, one of the things that they compare addiction to, the disease model of addiction, and not everyone that has, not everyone 
um, that it has a secular worldview has a disease model of addiction. So I want to clear that up, make sure I'm, I say that. But many people, most people do that don't have a biblical worldview. And they compare addiction to hypertension, asthma, uh, diabetes. And so to me, when you give someone a, a, an idea that they have a disease, you give them an excuse to keep using. And, and so that's why I, I don't like that model. I, I disagree yeah, strongly I agree. with it. Um, and so did you ever think, Josh, did you ever think you'd change? No. I mean, I wanted to. I did. I wanted to. I didn't know to what, but I know I knew that I couldn't keep going. I knew that I was going to be dead or that I was going to be in prison. Um, and as I heard that younger, I thought that was just so cliche. Like if you start, all it takes is weed or alcohol. That's your gateway. You'll be in prison or you'll be dead. Um, but what I saw in my life and a lot of other close friends, that that was the truth. And I knew that was my next steps. I didn't think, I didn't know what could change. I didn't know what could break it. Um, yeah. Well, how, let me just ask you this, and this isn't on my list of questions, but how, how good did it feel for your grand? I know your grandma and your grandpa have been left to be with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had a privilege of watching you preach your grandpa's funeral, which was pretty cool. But, uh, you know, how, how did it feel to, to know that you, they got to see you change, man. They got to see you become a man of God and preach the word. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't explain it. It just, uh, I don't know if, I know they never gave up praying, but I don't know if they thought it would ever be broken. Yeah. I, I really don't know if they thought that. So for them to be able to see and them to be able to come to a freeway service and, and see that, um, it was just, it was better than any high. It was better than any rush um, just to see that what happened, what statistics, what family members, what the world say will never be broken, will never change. Um, yeah. And they got to see it firsthand before both of them passed. So that really meant a lot to me. I mean, my grandfather, I remember him, every day he would have my daily bread, a bowl of cereal, and doing his Bible study. And so for him to be, have an opportunity to see that too, especially, and pursuing that and following the Lord and that calling, I just, it's amazing. Yeah, they had that acronym for joy, right? Yeah, in the front of her Bible. Your Jesus. grandma? Yep. Yeah. Jesus first, others second, yourself last? Yep. Yeah, that's a good acronym, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So praise the Lord. They got to see that. People who watched you be a terrorist, you know, mm-hmm. um, and loved you. And, and a lot of times, even Christian people don't really believe someone can change sometimes. Yeah. They think, okay, well, they're an alcoholic. They're, they're a drug addict. And so... Um, so let's talk about the discipleship house, Josh. Uh, you <clears throat> came straight from an IC unit, ICU unit, which is probably you're the only one that's ever done that, into the men's home. So let's talk about uh, the, the men's discipleship house just for a second. Okay. Uh, for those who don't know, we have a one-year-long program for men and women, and we call it a, a discipleship program because discipleship is our recovery. Yeah. And so what we want to do is make disciples. We want to teach people how to live out the biblical disciplines and principles found inside God's Word. We want to get them plugged into a local church, get them mentored, teach them about, about hard work, teach them about how to serve the Lord, um, and really teach them how to live out what Jesus taught us in the Word of God. Amen. And so you come from the ICU unit. Tell us about your first night in the men's house. It was rough. Um, I was still on a lot of medication that the hospital had given me just for coming down through withdrawals that I still had to be on. 
Um, they had discharged me. I was medically cleared to leave. My grandma brought me. It was on a Thursday. So we had Thursday night Bible study. I'm pretty sure Aaron McGuire was teaching the study that night. And I just remember um, I'm sitting on the fireplace mantle there as we're all gathered in the room. It was a full house. And um, I don't even know what book of the Bible we were in. I just remember that they said this is what we're doing the study in tonight. And I was too prideful to look at the front of the Bible to see what page it was on because I didn't know how to navigate it in the Bible. And I got frustrated, so I just sat the Bible down, and I just listened, which was probably the best thing. And um, I just looked around, and I just I felt out of place. I wondered if I was going to last. I wondered if they would know that, you know, I don't know these things about Christianity, about the Bible. And then that night, still, my body was just going through so many changes. I was on the top bunk, and um, it was hard for me to get up uh, with my size on the top bunk on those metal beds. And I remembered I just I couldn't sleep, and it's about 1 o'clock in the morning, and I had to use the bathroom. And I'm like, if I go down from this bunk, I'm never going to be able to get back up. But they had also told me, the house leader at that time, that there's no sleep in the living room. Can't fall asleep on the couches. Can't fall asleep on the chair. They said, John stops by. You know, you'll get in trouble by us. And, um, you know, that's one of Stroop's rules with that for the houses. So um, I wasn't going to go back in, try to wake everybody up, trying to get back up to the top of the bunk. And. I just try to stay up the whole night, sitting in that chair the rest of the night. And I called you the next day and asked if I could pay extra to move to the bottom bunk. I couldn't fix it. Yeah. So that was quite a night. Oh, it was rough. The first three nights really were like that before <laughs> my body just got, it, it takes a while, you know, for, for that long being on, your body just being able to sleep and, you know, having those using dreams. And after those three nights, though, it, it made a big change. So let's go from there. Uh, and then talk just through how is the how did the discipleship house change your life, Josh? Outside of my salvation, the discipleship house has been the most monumental thing in my walk with Christ. I mean, like you said, it's one year long. Um, I stayed four and a half years. Um, it one it gave me brothers, a family, something I never had. I'd been lonely. That's part of the reason I started using it at the end when I came back. You know, when I came back to Springfield, most of my friends were dead or in prison, so I was by myself. You know, I tried to stay sober and work, but I had money, and that was the next thing to turn to. So I had this family. Um, you know, we operated in that family unit at the discipleship house, and the stuff it taught me from the Bible studies to, you know, just the fellowship that we had going through discipleship those nights there. I mean, that was the biggest thing because I believe a lot of people make that decision, you know, especially – if you're coming out of addiction and go to a ministry service or a church service, you can make a very emotionally led decision and somebody might mark that down or the church might celebrate it. And then after that though, there's no discipleship. There's no one coming alongside you. There's no people investing in you and pouring into you. And then you have a baby immature Christian that doesn't know what to do next. And they go back to that old life. And it's uh, it showed me leadership. It showed me how to do ministry. Um, I, I was at BBC and I graduated from BBC and it was amazing. What's BBC? Baptist Bible College. So I went to Baptist Bible College and, uh, you know, I, I learned some amazing stuff, had amazing teachers and leaders there, but there was stuff that they couldn't teach me in the classroom there that I learned from hands-on ministry. You know, like I said, they don't teach you how to, somebody that's drunk and out of their mind at the house, uh, you know, how to get them out of the house and how to take them somewhere, how to do intake. There's just stuff that I didn't learn there. So it was hands-on ministry that I got to do, and it prepared me, uh, you know, for the mission field, for what we're in now. Amen. Uh, they don't teach you how to drive a van with no back seats with frozen chickens in it, do they? No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Sliding around. No. You know, it's it's amazing. You know, 
the the mission field, I mean, a lot of, you know, I've had house leaders before that went through BBC and graduated as well. Mike Estelle is one of them. Yeah. And uh, he's still, I think, in school doing some other stuff, but online. But um, I remember many times that I would look at Mike, for instance, and I could talk about him because he's my friend and, and he don't care. He, he knows it's the truth. But um, he would be wondering about his ministry, you know. And he'd be looking to leave the program and thinking about what's next. And I, I would just encourage him not to forget about the ministry he has while he's there. Yeah. Because you become the pastor of the home. Absolutely. You learn more about pastoring and at the, being a leader in the men's house and more about being a father <laughs> than, than you will ever in a, any college. You know, it's hands-on. Yeah. And so uh, you build those lifelong relationships with the men um, that are in the house and they come to you as a father and a pastor. Yeah. You're the shepherd of the house. I mean, you're, you're setting that spiritual bar. You're doing biblical counseling after a hard day or someone gets a phone call or someone has a hard coworker they're dealing with. It can be the littlest thing to the biggest thing. I mean, you're the one they're going to you. You're the shepherd of the house and it is, it's hands on and you're living with them. It's 24 seven. You're eating together. You're working together. You're going to church together. You're, I mean, you're doing life together. It's shoulder to shoulder ministry. So why did you wait four and a half years, man? (laughs) (sighs) I don't know. So, I mean, I think that was God and his timing with it. Um, Definitely some of it, I was scared. I've never done that good in my life. Um, I didn't know what freedom was going to look like on the other side. What was I going to do with that freedom? You know, in my head and in my heart, I knew what I was supposed to do. But every time that I've had that presented before me in the past, I never did the right thing. And so I, I, part of that, I was definitely scared. Um, the other part, I mean, I loved it. It was, it was my home. It, it truly was uh, like, it was my home. I was excited to be there every night. Um, our dinners together, our, our, we had family dinners. We'd all cook together and eat together and sit up in the living room. And I'd sit on the floor um, in my graves room and we'd be four hours deep just asking questions about the Bible and discipleship and stuff I didn't know. And we'd go through it. So it, it Outside, I would say definitely outside of my marriage, those four and a half years were probably some of the best, most unique, uh, amazing, just life experiences that I had being in the discipleship house. Where was the first place you served in a local church? Children's ministry. Okay. I started teaching second graders at Crossway. I got so excited because I was also learning the Bible for the first time. So all these, there's nothing basic about the Bible, but all these basic Bible stories, Bible accounts that kids grow up knowing. It was the first time I was hearing it. So I remember one day I was teaching this lesson specifically. Um, I didn't know what the rainbow was. I didn't know that it was a covenant. Like, I didn't know that it was a covenant that God's never going to flood the whole earth again. And so what I had done was I went and I personally bought some uh, fruit snacks with my own money, went to Walmart first, got there, and I had all these questions about it, and I thought I was going to stump all these second graders. Every single one of them knew the answer to that question. They knew what it was about. And it just blew my mind, and I just... At that point, I was like, they don't understand what they have and uh, how beautiful that is, that they're growing up with this. So you and the second graders learned about the rainbow together. Same time. Praise the Lord. Uh, tell, us about, tell us about when you first became a house leader. How did that feel when you became the leader of the house? It felt good and scary. It was, I knew it was a big responsibility. Um, I've I never been able to lead myself. I felt like I couldn't leave myself out of a wet paper bag, let alone lead a house full of men. Um, 
some of a lot of them were older than me. I struggled with that too. A lot of them were married and had kids a few years younger than me, even at that point. And um, I was excited for the opportunity. You know, that, that was at that first point was about the same time that I was trying to enroll for Baptist Bible College, thinking that um, this is something that I want to do for the rest of my life. So it was kind of affirmation, like as far as that direction and first opportunity into leadership like that, yeah. and pursuing it. So it was it was a little bit of shock, though. What about the pains and pitfalls and the growth? You feel like what's the most painful thing? Uh, being a house leader at the men's house. First, definitely when we lose somebody, like truly lose them, death, overdose. Um, that's happened multiple times. And then the other ones, they, 10, they're like 10, 9, 10, 11 monthers that had done so good the whole way that you've poured into, that you've seen in that one month left, that two months left. When they take off and when they go back out, that's hard. And those relationships that are built, and that's the hard part is, and you've counseled me a lot through that. I get so angry and I feel like they're sinning against me. Then they're sinning against Freeway. And you said, listen, they're, they're not sinning against Freeway. You know, that's between them and God. And not building up that calloused heart where I'm not going to let my guard down. I'm not going to get close to them again. But then you have to. So you finding that balance, that that's really hard. You said the same thing to Mike Graves and to me. Uh, when the situation happened, he said, you've been praying for God to use you? I said, yeah. He said, well, do you feel used after somebody takes off? And it's true, um, but, but that's really hard. I mean, they're, they're like family. They are. They're gonna... Yeah, it's, you know, and here's what I've learned. There's some people that you just have to say, you know what, I'm going to commit to working with this person as they continue these cycles until they die. Hmm. Because most likely... You know, I hope they change. Yeah. But this is the 15th time yeah. that you've done this. You know, am I going to stop loving them because they won't stop getting high? Yeah. Am I going to stop loving them because they're, you know, they, so I have to continue to say, you know what, sometimes people are just going to struggle like this for the rest of their life. And I have to, I get to be the shepherd right. and love them and walk through life with them. I may not take you 15 times in the men's house. Yeah. But I'm still going to welcome you to Freeway when you come on Saturday night. I'm still going to put my arm around you, pray with you. I'm not going to give up hope. But, you know, you have to come to the fact that, you know what, I, I just seen a deal on Facebook today from somebody, and this they're getting out of treatment again. And I can't tell you how many times that person's been in treatment. I guarantee in the last three or four years, this person's been in the men's house twice and left because of a bad attitude and some other reasons, and I guarantee in the last three or four years, they've probably been in treatment 15 times, yeah. you know, and they're out again. You know, I've got out again. I'm thinking, man, you know, I, I, want, I want them to get it. Right. But I can't Absolutely. take it personal. Um, and so, man, there's so much, but we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to go ahead and close right now, and we're going we're gonna to end our first set. We're going to talk about – the new Josh, we're going to talk about next next episode, we're going to talk about where you are today, what God is doing in your life, uh, how God is taking you from that great big mess, and now he's giving you a big message. He's sending you all over the United States, even across the globe. Uh, you married a wonderful, beautiful woman yeah. who is uh, comes from a missionary family, who's your, who's your lead singer, right? Yes, sir. And uh, so anyways, we're going to talk all about that. But if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please share uh, Freeway Ministries Facebook 
Uh, you can go to our podcast, One Broken Life podcast. You can check us out on different different uh, areas where we li- where the, we're listed: Spotify, Apple. Um, if you would like to support Freeway Ministries as we reach One Broken Life at a time, you can go to our website at www.freeway-ministries.com. Uh, we are very grateful to have you with us. I hope you join us back uh, for our next episode with Josh Zuniga. Thanks, Josh. Thank you.